Um, this is, uh, in a sense, a kind of antidote to uh, your economics courses in that um, this is meant to be a completely practical exposition of the way in which economic policy decisions are made uh, in this country. And um, the reason uh, that I'm doing it that way is because essentially that's what um, I have been involved in. And if no, this isn't, maybe this one will work. No, not, not successful so far. Just a minute. Every clicker seems to be. Have you any idea how to activate this? Everything I click is just going nowhere. Sorry, it's just automatically. Ah, so, so which, which do I use? So if you just use that, I'll just say that's that one. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. So just as a sort of background as to um, what my involvement in uh, all of this has been, and essentially, okay, the point of this is really this book about the way decisions are made. I'll talk a bit at the end about the actual performance of British economy, this is more about the kind of mechanics of policy making. And I was, uh, from 76 to 82, I was a Treasury official. In fact, for the last two years, I've rejoiced in the title Principal Monetary Policy. Uh, which actually was quite a lonely position, although it sounded rather grand. Uh, and then in the mid-80s, uh, I was a special advisor to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, to Nigel Lawson, also at a rather difficult time. Um, then I was later on Director General of the CBI, not of course directly involved in policymaking, but the CBI had you know, the objective of the CBI influence economic policy, so you're quite closely related to what's going on. And then I was brought back into uh, the public service um, where the government asked me to be Deputy Governor of the Bank of England in '95, and I was there uh, through the changes in '97, and then became Chairman of the Financial Services Authority until 2003 when I came here. So uh, relatively unusually, I've been in the Treasury, uh, in the Bank of England, uh, and the CBI and the FSA. So this is a kind of insider uh, perspective. Um, Let's start with monetary policy. This is, of course, nobody knows. Mervyn. That's right, Mervyn King, um, who is the governor of the Bank of England, um, who was a professor at the LSE until 1992, um, when he was plucked back from the LSE originally on a part-time basis to the, uh, to the Bank of England. Then he became the chief economist, and then in 2003 became uh, the governor. The governor is appointed for a five-year term. He was appointed in 2003, reappointed in 2008. Uh, he's there till 2013. And for monetary policy purposes, his sidekick is Charlie Bean, who, it will not surprise you to know, was a professor at the LSE until he was uh, plucked into the Bank of England in the uh, late 90s uh, to be the deputy governor on monetary policy. In fact, when I was in the Bank of England, there was only one deputy governor, it was a sort of chairman-chief executive relationship, and now there are two deputy governors, one for monetary policy and one for financial stability, and maybe soon there'll be a third one for banking supervision, which we'll uh, come on to. So uh, the Bank of England is a kind of LSE economics department uh, in exile. Uh, we hope one day maybe we'll get them back. Um, in 97, 
And I'm, one could go a long way back, but I won't. The incoming Labour government reformed the monetary policy process in this country in a very fundamental way. During the uh, 80s and 90s, most developed countries came to the view that it made sense for interest rates to be set by an independent central bank rather than to be set by politicians. And this was an unusual example, if you like, of politicians reaching the view that it was better for them not to control an economic instrument because they were kind of aware that they were tempted to manipulate interest rates in the run-up to the election. You know, you always wanted to put interest rates down, but then typically after the election you would pay the price in the form of higher inflation. And that therefore damaged credibility. And gradually countries around the world came to the view that it didn't really make much sense for politicians to administer interest rates themselves. And a lot of academic work was done also on the performance of independent central banks. And central bank independence became a kind of uh, ideology which spread around the world. Obviously the Fed had been independent for a long time. The Maastricht Treaty of 92 set up the ECB in an extremely independent form. And most other developed countries did the same. The UK was very late to this realisation. The previous Conservative government up to 97 uh, didn't like it. This was an interesting respect in which uh, Mrs Thatcher was a kind of rather old-fashioned politician. She said, you know, why would I hand over uh, this weapon to the Bank of England? Who knows what the hell they do with it? And so she insisted on maintaining control. But when Blair and Brown came into office in 97, they were strongly influenced by the fact that all previous Labour governments had fallen uh, foul of a sort of lack of confidence in financial markets. And they said, well, we don't want to do that. We don't want to get into a position where we are thought to be risky in terms of financial policy and inflation. So we will embed a kind of uh, certainty on it, inflation um, in the Bank of England by making the Bank of England uh, independent. But curiously, there's now a symmetry that we'll come on to in what the new coalition government are doing on the fiscal policy side, where they have inherited a position where they believe that the credibility of fiscal policy is weak, and therefore they've set up an independent agency to somehow try to gain greater credibility in the markets about the government's fiscal forecasts. But in 97, the perception was, the problem was, that the UK was perceived to be unusually vulnerable to inflation. And the way to deal with that was to make the bank independent. So the Bank of England was granted independence to set interest rates, but with a target set by the government. Those of you who look into this uh, area, and I've just written a, a sort of survey of central banks uh, myself, in the jargon you will find there, is, uh, there are central banks who have target independence and central banks who have instrument independence. The Fed and the ECB are both uh, target independent in the sense that they have legislation which says they should keep inflation low, but it doesn't say what low is. In other words, it's left to the Fed or the ECB to determine what low inflation is. Now, typically, actually, all of these central banks implicitly adopt a target that's rather like the UK's of 2%. You know, that's kind of where they 
typically are. And if you hear the ECB and the Fed talking, that's what they're really after. Uh, but technically speaking, it's up to them to define it. Whereas in the UK, the model that we have is of instrument independence, i.e. the government sets the target and can change it, and the central bank sets the interest rate. In fact, the government has changed the target once because it started off centred on 2.5%, and now it's centred on 2%. But clearly, changing the target is quite a difficult thing to do politically. The way it's done is that there's a monetary policy committee, always referred to as the MPC, with nine members. I was one of the founder members of it. Um, and four of them are external to the Bank of England. Most of those externals have actually been former LSC professors, as it happens, although they're sort of running out. They've more or less used up all our ma uh, macroeconomists now. Um, so there are five, uh, nine, five internal members, uh, the governor, two deputy governors, and markets... Uh, director and one other, and then uh, four externals <coughs> excuse me, who are typically appointed for three-year terms. And banking supervision at the same time was moved to the Financial Services Authority, and what happened was I was a deputy governor and told to take all that away and merge it with a lot of other regulators and create the FSA, which is what I then did, and I left the Bank of England at that point. So that's the structure of it, and the purposes of the bank are very clearly defined in the legislation. So the Monetary Policy Committee sets monetary policy by deciding short-term interest rates to meet the inflation target 2%. And there is a band <coughs> of plus or minus 1%, which is a sort of tolerance band around that. And if uh, the interest rate goes, if the inflation rate goes outside that band, then the governor is supposed to write to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and explain why that's happened and explain what he plans to do to bring it back into the bank. And we'll come on to see what the performance has been recently. And then the bank has a second core purpose of financial stability. Uh, many people would argue that it hasn't done quite so well on that second core purpose recently um, as it has done on the first. Um, and indeed, some changes have been introduced recently to kind of strengthen the focus on financial stability in the bank by giving it an actual statutory objective, which it never had. It was kind of an implicit view that that was the sort of thing central banks did, was look at financial markets, but there was no explicit uh, statutory obligation on the bank to promote financial stability, which there now is. But coming back to inflation, um, this is uh, what the performance has been recently. For a long time, from 97 up to this point here, the bank maintained inflation within this narrow band of tolerance. And indeed, Mervyn King, who makes very witty speeches, you know, made a couple of jokes that you know, his aim was to make monetary policy boring, and he felt he succeeded in that, um, which has not been the case for the last couple of years, um, and also that the art of letter writing was dead. Sort of thing that parents complain about their children they never get letters from them and the Chancellor didn't get a letter from the Governor from 97 until 2007 because inflation had remained within this plus or minus 1% bank but as you can see that's not, kind of, that's not the way it's been and indeed uh, inflation spiked at 5% um, in September 2008 and then sort of went down back into the band briefly and then has gone way above the band uh, since then. So at the moment, we are in a rather unusual uh, position. The bank always presents 
its inflation forecasts in the form of this fan chart, which in the bank is always known as the rivers of blood, and it uh, shows the, what they reckon the central expectation is, and the probability, you know, these reflect different probabilities of outcomes outside this. And as you can see, what has actually happened was kind of outside all of the probabilities that the bank uh, was looking at, um, even as little as a year ago. And this is actually um, uniquely bad performance, because if you look at this, um, this looks at, uh, which is actually an Institute of Fiscal Studies chart, which I rather like, which is taking what the consensus forecasts for these economies were at the end of 2008 for 2009, and what actually happened in 2009. And this is uh, growth uh, across this way, so that the average forecast um, for was actually for in 2000, end of 2008, people were still forecasting growth in 2009, interestingly enough. And all of these countries had outturns which were much worse. And in Germany and Italy, it was almost 4% worse than expected in terms of growth. The United States was 1% uh, worse, and the UK was about 3% worse. At the UK, we, there was a forecast of, of, of recession in 2009. I think it was forecast at minus 1. It turned out to be about minus 4. Um, in every country except the UK, there was also an inflation surprise on the downside which is kind of what you'd expect. You know, if growth turns out to be significantly lower than anyone's expecting, then the chances are interest rates going to be lower, and the chances are that demand pressure is going to be weaker and inflation is going to be lower. But in the UK, inflation was higher uh, than the forecast. Why is this? Appears to be two reasons. One, um, a significant exchange rate depreciation, but actually uh, that most of that occurred in 2008, as we'll see. And so secondly, there appears to have been a significant sort of productivity decline in the UK and some labour hoarding. This is kind of the other side of the coin as to why our unemployment rate has not risen as much as you might have expected given the growth uh, outcome. So at the moment, you know, our inflation performance in this country is not great and is, of course, one of the constraints that the government and the Bank of England has to have in mind um, in thinking about both the fiscal policy position but also the monetary policy position. You know, it's fine to say we should do lots more quantitative easing, but you know, there could be a risk that you actually create further inflationary expectations. I guess my own view is that probably the bank are right that inflation will come back within the target because I think demand pressures are still quite weak. But this is quite a puzzling and uh, quite a, uh, an unfortunate turn of events, really. So looking forward, what does the bank think will happen? Well, it thinks that at the moment. Um, in other words, we're at 3.1. Uh, it thinks the central tendency is that the inflation rate will come back within the target range um, and indeed go uh, below it in 2012-2013. This, of course is influenced by the bank's expectations on fiscal policy. And this, because this is the August 2010 chart, um, takes account of the fact that the coalition had by that time said that they planned to cut the fiscal deficit sharp. So to some extent, of course, there is a mirror of the fiscal policy and monetary policy 
you know, if you say you're going to be very tight on fiscal policy, then if you factor that into the bank's model, that will, on the whole, tell you that inflation is likely to, to come down. So, to some extent, this is forecasting, you know, that the governments will be successful in what it aims to do on, on fiscal policy. Um, so, that's kind of where we are on monetary policy and how it's done. Um, and that's sort of the position and that framework was what the coalition government inherited when they came into office in May. Now, in opposition, they were actually quite critical of the Bank of England, uh, but also of the way in which you know, financial stability had been overseen. And they had proposed some changes, though not, in fact, to the inflation regime. So, at the moment, as far as the government's concerned, the inflation target will remain in place the monetary policy regime will remain in place, but um, they will put banking supervision back in the Bank of England, though in a kind of wholly owned subsidiary, no one quite knows how that's going to work yet, and they've established a financial policy committee which will sit alongside the monetary policy committee. And this is because of their perception that you know, the bank has been much, much better on inflation than it had been on financial stability, and therefore that there needs to be a greater symmetry within the bank in terms of its two principal objectives. So we haven't got that financial policy committee yet, and indeed it's not quite clear what its instruments will be, although there is a discussion about something called macroprudential regulation, whereby you know, you'd alter bank capital requirements if you felt credit was expanding and try to promote financial stability that way. But that's what there will be, which will be chaired also by the governor, but the other big thing that the new government said that they would do would be to establish an office of budget responsibility. And as I said a few minutes ago, when the Labour government came in in 97, their perception was that the big credibility problem they faced was an inflation credibility. And this incoming government believed that the big government credibility problem is a lack of credibility on fiscal policy. Because, actually, for quite a long time, under the last government, the forecasts of the fiscal deficit were wrong. Particularly, the government was consistently over-optimistic in terms of forecasting its income. Now, you can then argue, and nobody quite knows the extent to which these were politically manipulated forecasts, but clearly, by 2007-8, the Treasury's credibility in forecasting income was low uh, because it had been consistently over-optimistic. I mean, even in the good times, let alone in the recession. So, the big innovation this year has been the establishment of the Office of Budget Responsibility, run by this guy, uh, who, unusually in this story, uh, was not at the LSE. Um, uh, this guy's called Robert Choate, uh, who was an FT journalist, actually, and then um, was the head of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which I think is, by a long way, the best kind of commentator on UK uh, economic policy. And he has been persuaded by uh, the government to come in to head the Office of Budget Responsibility, which was quite a coup because, you know, he's probably the most credible commentator on fiscal policy uh, over the last few years. So to sort of bring him 
inside the tent doing the Office of Budget Responsibility job is quite a big achievement by uh, George Osborne. What is the job? Well, the job is to produce independent assessments of the public finances and the economy, uh, to present a range of outcomes around it, and an independent assessment of the public sector balance sheet, so that in future, for every budget and for every comprehensive spending review, and you know, typically the, in, in this country, the budget is about income and the spending review in the autumn is about spending. It's a slightly peculiar. Some people think it would be better if we did the two together, but we don't. So we're about to have a two week time CSR, as it's called, the Comprehensive Spending Review, will come out, and that will be about government spending. But of course, both of them have to be set against the background of forecasts of income and expenditure and forecasts of economic growth. Now, nobody thinks the OBR will know what economic growth is going to be, but nonetheless, it will have to certify that the government's assumptions are at least plausible. And so uh, the, C the OBR will have to say, you know, is the government's policy consistent with a better than 50% chance of achieving the fiscal mandate set by the Chancellor? Which is a slightly funny kind of formulation, but you can sort of see what uh, they're doing. Clearly, you're in the business of probabilities here. Uh, you're not in the business of a point forecast. Uh, so the question is whether the kind of central expectation on revenues and expenditure is consistent with the deficit reduction target that the Chancellor has set. And so this is, you know, quite a tight constraint for the government, um, because it does remove the opportunity of presenting uh, deliberately optimistic forecasts of revenue uh, and of expenditure, which clearly the last uh, government did. So George Osborne, uh, the Chancellor, is now in charge, and he clearly is now responsible for deciding on the setting the fiscal dials. Uh, but of course, um, given that everything in this coalition government has to be balanced. Uh, he also has a sidekick, who is this guy, who is Danny. Danny Alexander, who is the Chief Secretary. And uniquely in government departments, the, the Treasury has two cabinet ministers. And traditionally, the Chancellor has been the sort of overall kind of macro guy, you know, in charge of the overall judgments on the economy. And the Chief Secretary has been the public spending person. Um, and this is really because in the UK, the Treasury is both an economic ministry and a finance ministry. You know, many countries in Europe, they'll have a Ministry of Economy and a Minister of Finance. Or in the US, you've got a Treasury Secretary and an OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, which is the public spending department. In the UK, it's together. And therefore, in order to reflect that, you have two ministers, both of whom sit in the cabinet. The Chancellor sits in the cabinet and the Chief Secretary sits in the cabinet. And the Chief Secretary is the person who is overall responsible for public expenditure. Under the Gordon Brown regime, uh, frankly, it was quite easy to forget who the Chief Secretary was, uh, because the Chief Secretary was not given much time in the limelight and you know everything was taken by Gordon Brown and even in the Treasury you met officials and said who's the Chief Secretary? They go, oh God, you know, what the government? You know, just he was not 
regarded as important, but at the moment, particularly because of the fact that he's a Lib Dem and the um, George Osborne's obviously a Tory, that this you know, is an important sort of balancing act uh, which is underway. Now, what are they trying to do? Well, this is the background, um, and it's not a great uh, position. These are actually the IMF uh, forecasts from April of this year, so these actually um, take account. This is what the government was looking at when it came into office. Because, and this takes into account the previous government's fiscal policy, if you like. In other words, um, the previous government under Alistair Darling said, we will reduce half the structural deficit in the course of the next parliament. So if he'd been elected, that was his plan, that from 2010 to 14, that the, half the structural deficit would go. So the reason I put this chart up is because this was the one that Osborne was looking at you know, when, when elected. He said, well, what is the plan? What does it look like? This is what it looked like. The interesting thing about it is um, what the position was pre-crisis. And in the UK, uh, we did not have any recession in uh, the early part of this century. The Eurozone had a small recession in 2001, so did uh, the US, uh, Japanese of course have had a couple during that time. But the UK economy grew every quarter from Q2 92 to Q2 2008. Uh, 64 consecutive quarters of growth. Now, of course, uh, nobody has a very, very clear idea of the trend growth rate in this economy or anybody else's. Nobody has a terribly clear idea of uh, you know, capacity and just how far above capacity you are. But nonetheless, you have to make assumptions about this. And most people would have said that for a mature economy like the UK, after 64 consecutive quarters of growth, the chances are that you are bumping up against full capacity or probably above. Um, and the chances are that at that point, um, if you want to have a fiscal policy, which is supposedly a neutral fiscal policy, the government's objective was that they would balance um, the budget over the cycle. That was their objective. The idea that, you know, at this point, with a massive consumer boom like we've never seen, um, and after 16 years of growth, we should have had an almost 4% deficit, you know, it seems to me to tell you that you were almost certainly then in a significant structural deficit. I mean, I think if you look at, say, Australia uh, or Canada, you know, they were running, at this point, running big fiscal surpluses, which I think is where we should have been. The Germans had a surplus as well. Um, and we clearly should have been in that position. So we began uh, this crisis um, in a structural deficit. And we, of course, also had two uh, particular problems in the crisis, um, one of which is that you know, the financial sector is relatively large in the UK economy. So if you've got a crisis that, is, that begins in the financial sector, it's likely to affect the UK more than other countries. Uh, but the particular dimension of it, which I think has still not been uh, as well understood as it might be, is that uh, the government's income was very heavily dependent on the financial sector. I can't remember the precise numbers, but I think in 2006, something like 40% of all corporate profits in this country were financial firms. 
You know, we can all now say in retrospect, this is mad, you know, how could you run this way? But that's what it was. And so the deterioration in the government's fiscal position as a result of a deterioration in the state of the financial sector has been very dramatic. So whereas, you know, the French um, started off sort of here and went down to, you know, deficit of eight, you know, we have crashed down to more like uh, 12. And that's a pretty tricky position to be in. Now, it's fair to say that um, when we began this crisis, um, we were in 2007, in terms of stock of debt, so that I was talking about, you know, that's annual deficits, in terms of the stock of general government debt, um, we were, you know, not a bad position, 44% of GDP in 2007. Clearly, Japan is off the map for a whole variety of reasons, but, you know, there were Belgium, Greece, and Italy kind of bumping up around the 100% of uh, GDP uh, territory, and we were, you know, below, uh, below the French, for example, below the Germans. So we started off, you know, not a bad position uh, in terms of you know, where we were in a kind of global lead table of debt, if you like. But the problem is that um, by 2014, this was, uh, this is assuming the previous government's policy, in other words, that they would reduce half the, half the fiscal deficit in that four-year period, which was already, you know, quite tight, actually, um, we would still be uh, at 100% um, by, uh, the, by 2014. And so we would have been, you know, uh, in uh, the big four at that point. Uh, so our position was deteriorating, um, or is still deteriorating, more rapidly than um, anybody else, with, with the, the possible exception of some of the, the smaller countries like Ireland and Greece, who are pretty much kind of off the map on this chart. But I mean, of the major countries, we were, you know, deteriorating more rapidly uh, than anybody else. Um, and it's not because of a deliberate fiscal stimulus. In other words, it's not that, like uh, China, you know, which still in 2010 has got a sort of deliberate fiscal stimulus of over 2.5% of GDP. You know, the, the, the Chinese implemented a massive fiscal or trillion remedy fiscal stimulus program at the end of 2008 in order to prevent their economy uh, going down below 8% growth. And that's still, you know, that's still in there, in the system. We've got none. You know, so you, it's not as if when you look at the spending plan, there are people kind of digging holes in the road and filling them in on a deliberate fiscal stimulus, which you can stop. We haven't got that. This is not, um, this is just, we're looking at normal uh, spending, you know, on normal public sector things, not special programs of special road building programs and stuff like that, which people have in some countries implemented during the recession. So there's not, there's no uh, sort of fiscal stimulus to withdraw. And really what it is, is that public spending grew really quite sharply. The UK is the green line here, um, and this is quite a long period, but um, you can see that we went up uh, quite sharply in the 70s, and then this was when I was in the Treasury and the IMF came in and said, sorry, you're getting your public spending at that time you know, was considerably higher than these other major economies. And so we then had to pull back in the 70s. And then this was kind of Thatcher, where there was a recession first. But then that's the kind of impact 
of Margaret Thatcher, uh, if you like, taking this down. Um, and then what interestingly happened when Labour came into office was that in the first term, Blair and Brown said, we're going to maintain the previous government's spending plans for the first four years. And they had a lot of fuss within the Labour Party at that time. People thought, what the hell have we been elected for? You know, if we're going to do exactly what the Tories would have done. But their view was that unless they built you know, monetary credibility through the Bank of England and fiscal credibility through maintaining a disciplined fiscal policy, that you know, they would be another one-term Labour government. And Blair's objective always was, you know, we can't have a position where what we basically have in this country is Tory government, and then every now and again the population gets fed up and elects Labour for four years, and Labour goes on a spending splurge and then loses. You know, that was the sort of pattern. You know, that's what you had if you look back. And so we determined not to do that, so maintained a very disciplined fiscal policy right up until the 2001 election. And then, boy, um, you know, let the, turn the tap on and spent a lot of money. Now, there's a very uh, lively debate now about what you got for this money. Um, you know, clearly you've got, I mean, the NHS looks a lot better. Uh, a lot of schools have been built, a uh, certain amount of rail expenditure, not so visible to see road expenditure. Universities actually did not do that badly after a long period of time when universities were rather tightly uh, constrained. Uh, university funding increased during this period. Unfortunately, the Office of National Statistics also shows uh, that public sector productivity fell. Uh, now, this is a tricky concept, public sector productivity, but you know, they do measure outputs of the public sector over inputs, and during this time also, public sector productivity fell quite sharply. Public sector wages rose more rapidly than private sector wages. It's one thing that people don't tend to know in this country, but the average wage in the public sector is significantly higher than the average wage in the private sector. And essentially, we are in a position where you know, public spending uh, was rocketing. And we went up from you know, 35, 36% of, of GDP in 2001 up to 54% of GDP uh, this year. And you know, in anybody's language, that is a big change a very large increase in public spending. Now, some other countries have, you know, US has actually gone up as well, and other people have been trending upwards in the recession, which is what you'd expect. Uh, but this big splurge here, you know, which kind of pushed us up right up to the uh, level of the uh, French, um, was a big change in policy. And essentially, that is what we are now that is what the government is now looking at. You know, what are we? You know, you, it doesn't look as if that's a sustainable position. And indeed, the previous government thought that too. Now, there's a lively argument about how quickly you correct it. So the coalition now plans to do this um, and to um, push the budget deficit down more sharp. So they're saying we are going to remove all of the structural deficit in one parliament, um, which involves a squeeze on spending like you've never seen. Literally, uh, we have never seen. And nothing of this scale in the public sector has been done before, and nothing like it has been done before, actually. So we really do not know whether the public sector is able to achieve this kind of thing. If you, um, if you look at the differences between the two um, plans, 
then what this shows neatly, I think, is um, the Labour Party is the sort of red and pink bit. In other words, this is what, if Alistair Darling was still Chancellor, this is what his plan was, that there'd be some sizable tax increases, you know, top marginal rates gone up to 50%, VAT's going back up, etc. Um, and then that, that was the sort of red bars. And then in addition, he was forecasting these, this level of spending cuts. You know, this is all as a percentage of GDP. So he was assuming that by 1213, he would be taking, you know, one and a half percent of GDP out of public spending and rising up to the end of the parliament. And then in addition, the Tories have added on extra tax increases. That's, sorry, that's primarily the 20%. Uh, VAT from the 1st of January, which you will all notice, um, and additional spending cuts. And so this really, this is the battlefield, you know, uh, now, as to whether that new profile of spending cuts um, is likely to be appropriate or not. From a macroeconomic point of view, as opposed to, you know, the undergrowth of public spending, the big argument is this, you know, is the economy robust enough to cope with this? And most people, most economists would say, yeah, looking at this position, you've clearly got to do something about spending. And that, up to that point, it's not a controversial. The question is about scale and timing. And one lot of people say, crazy. You know, you see this actually, George Soros made a speech about it this week, Martin Wolf in the Financial Times will say this, this is what Ed Miliband and Ed Balls would say. They say, you know, you're likely to kick the economy into a double dip. Why do you think that? Well, because there are already signs of a global slowdown. The US economy is slowing down. The Chinese economy has actually come off the top as well. That there's still a lot of household deleveraging to go. People are still paying down debt. Um, they're not increased, they're certainly not increasing their debt. Um, uh, and that um, these government deficit cuts are too soon because you're doing them before the economy has really righted itself and has got a sort of sustainable growth path. And normally, if you cut fiscal, I mean, this is a grotesque oversimplification, but normally, if you, if you run an aggressive fiscal policy, then you're likely to get some monetary policy offset. You know, that your inflationary pressures will be weaker and, you know, all other things being equal with the same inflation target the chances are your central bank's going to be able to help you out um, with running lower interest rates than before. But if you're now at a zero bound on interest rates, which we are in effect, which is half a percent, uh, you know, then the effect of a mon the, the power of the monetary policy offsets weak. Yeah, what can you do? Um, you can do a bit more quantitative easing, but it's not clear how effective uh, that really is. So you can argue, yes, that interest rate increases will come later than they would have done if we'd let the fiscal policy run uh, but you know that's a bit less of an immediate offset you know that's sort of telling you that in 2004 interest rates may be 1% lower than they would otherwise be but you know you don't necessarily get much bang for that now the counter argument is that well overall global growth remains over 4% actually the overall IMF forecast for the world economy has gone up slightly that household delivering has been rapid, particularly in the US, and actually, you know, debt levels now are more affordable there. That deficit cuts, but this is where we get into kind of speculation, that, you know, if you cut 
public spending, you enhance confidence and don't derail the recovery. And the Tories will look back at what happened in Sweden in the early 90s and Canada in the early 90s and say, you know, here are examples of countries that got themselves into a fiscal hole and got themselves out of it by aggressive cuts in spending and they didn't derail the economy. Um, and they say, well, you know, central banks still can do some things if, you know, if things get, get tough. Frankly, you know, on these arguments, I think it's very, very difficult to know um, who will turn out to be right. Uh, the prudent policymaker, I think, would have some kind of plan B uh, in his back pocket if it turned out that once you set off down this track of aggressive spending cuts, if you saw the economy weakening significantly. Uh, you know, maybe you'd then delay tax increases or whatever. And frankly, I suspect the Treasury has such a thing. Uh, from my past experience, so probably you know, there would be things they would not do as quickly uh, if they felt the economy was slowing down. But that's really, I should shove those up because that's the kind of arguments that you'll see in the columns of the newspapers. The IMF just came recently and basically they supported the government. Uh, they didn't always, but they did this time. They said the economy's on the mend, uh, that inflation they thought was going to fall back, that you know, the risks, but they were upside and downside. In other words, the economy could even be stronger. Uh, and, you know, were supportive of the government's uh, fiscal plans. Well, I don't know, you know, there's plenty of other commentators who are not, but that's where the fund is at the moment. One of the tricky things, however, and which is another battlefield, is that the Liberal Democrats say, well, why are we in this coalition? Well, we're in this coalition to ensure that this deficit-cutting programme is done fair. You know? If we left the Tories to it, you know, they bias it towards the rich, and, and we're going to ensure it's fair. The problem is, the IFS have shown that actually, if you look at the effect of all the tax and benefit reforms, which the government have said, and you're making, you have to make some assumptions about the distribution of public spending cuts, but that actually, um, this will not be particularly progressive. I mean, the top, uh, the richest um, decile uh, in which... Well, all LSE professors come um, will be hit. Uh, but actually, if you look at this brown line, this is the percentage of income on the right-hand axis that these deciles will lose. So even if absolutely they lose more if you're in the second decile in terms of income, as a percentage of your income, it'll only be 2%, whereas at the bottom, it'll be 5%. This is a, another big Battlefield. Government don't like this at all. The Dems are embarrassed by this, and they're trying to find ways of uh, offsetting it. And indeed, uh, I think that the you know the announcement just a couple of days ago that in future child benefit would not be paid to people above a certain level of income is about this really. It's trying to kind of you know write this line because this is very sensitive uh, stuff, particularly for the. Liberal Democrats is trying to show that the government are in fact prepared to uh, bias their, their cuts uh, in such a way as to uh, you know, assure a reasonably fair distribution of them, indeed hopefully a progressive distribution of them. But this is tough to do because the problem is that the poorest couple of deciles of the population you know, are essentially outside the private economy. You know, I mean, they're, they're basically, most of these people are just are on benefits of one sort or another. I mean, that's the reality of life. And so if you're, made, if you're cutting benefits sharply, you know, the chances are you're going to cut uh, these people. And so you know, it's quite tough to actually cut on this scale um, 
you know, without having a, pro a problem at the bottom two deciles. So this is what they're going to do. They're all going to go to this thing called the star chamber. Curiously enough, um, I suppose this is one of the signs of getting old, is that this has all been written about as if, you know, this is a fantastic new idea, the star chamber. Well, we had one in the 1970s. I remember it well. I remember writing papers for it in 1977. You know, and what you do is it's a kind of a version of game theory, really. You, know, you, you, you assemble a group of ministers, uh, not just the treasury. Um, and what, what, you tie, what you try to do is you persuade some ministers to agree their, their cuts first. Um, and you might kind of help them a little bit by not agreeing such aggressive cuts. And then you make them join the star chamber and then they help you persuade other people to cut. So it's, a, it's an interesting bit of sort of game theory. But that's the group that's now assembled, uh, with an addition to the two from the Treasury, Oliver Letwin, uh, William Hague, the Foreign Secretary, and Francis Moore, to the core of it, um, who are you know, now, as we speak, going through bids and reading things like Liam Fox's letter explaining why, you know, if um, we cut the defense budget any further, the Chinese or the Russians or somebody will pour into the country and take us over. So, you know, they, all the departments are arguing uh, their corner. So that's what's really going on. Just finally, for a couple of minutes, um, the economic background over a slightly longer term. I mean, this is what's happened to growth here. And in, in fact, the peak to trough fall in output um, looks likely to be about 5.6%. Uh, that seems to be, unless we have a, a double dip, of course, which actually is about the same as in Germany. Um, it's uh, a little bit more than in the US, um, a little bit more than in France. It's about the same as in Italy. So actually, you know, some of the arguments that we were kind of massively affected in this country by the financial sector and by the bias of the financial sector is important from a fiscal point of view, from a tax revenue point of view, but in terms of overall output, you know, it's actually quite hard to see it. You know, it's not that, in fact, we've had a significantly deeper recession um, than other people. We didn't, actually. Uh, or about, sort of, in the middle of the pack, uh, actually. So, you can't you know, read across and say, well, it's because the UK had a uniquely deep recession because of the financial sector that we're in fiscal position, fiscal mess. It isn't really as simple as that. There's a bit of it because of the, the amount of tax that financial firms pay, but mainly, I would say, it's because we had a very strong uh, increase in public spending running up to this recession. So the recession has been nasty, uh, just like it's been everywhere. In fact, the rise in unemployment has been less uh, severe here than in most other places, although we may get a second round rise in unemployment coming out of the public sector, because up to now, you know, the public sector has been uh, pretty much protected from the crisis, because public spending has been allowed to rise as an offset. So you've had very few job losses in the public sector, and clearly the story of the next three years is going to be job losses in the public sector, and of course the government's big gamble is they will be offset by job increases in the private sector. We'll see. Um, the balance of payments remains in a tricky state. Um, you know, another thing, another background problem in the UK is a, a chronic balance of payments um, deficit. Uh, now, you know, I'm not one of those people who thinks 
you've got to balance the balance of payments all the time. Um, but you know, we do clearly have a structural balance of payments deficit. You know, if you're still running a large deficit when your economy is on its knees, you know, then that's a problem normally. I mean, you know, normally if you have a 5% fall in GDP in a year, you would expect the balance of payments to move more favorably. I mean, it obviously did move, but not that much. Um, and of course, we had a very significant devaluation in essentially in 2008. I mean, our devaluation occurred really rather sharply. Uh, the green line is um, against the dollar and the blue line against uh, the euro. And so, you know, against the dollar from sort of uh, July, August 2008 to January 2009, you know, we went down by almost 30%, I mean, in a very short period of time. And it's kind of bounced around that level uh, ever since. So we went from sort of two bucks and down to, you know, 138, something now, kind of 150-ish. And then we had a big, uh, a sharp depreciation against the euro in a slightly different uh, shape. And then since then, really, for, for two years, we've sort of, you know, bubbled along. But, you know, you, you might have expected a bigger benefit um, from this scale of devaluation. You know, one of the arguments you hear in this country about the euro and why we shouldn't be in the euro is we've got much more flexibility, we can devalue, we can get a benefit that way. Well, you know, maybe... But it doesn't, it's not very marked in the figures. Um, it looks as if, in fact, uh, exporters took the benefit in the form of price uh, rather than in the form of volume, uh, which in the short run might not be an irrational thing to do. If markets are quite depressed, you know, at least you can boast your profit, your profit margins because probably gaining share is quite difficult in a falling market. Um, but you know, it would be interesting to see what happens from now on. And one of our problems, in my view, is that we, the UK economy is not very well placed to take account of the really rapidly growing areas of the world. You know, 2% of our exports go to China, which is not a lot. And you know, there's only so much uh, Crabtree and Evelyn safe and China is higher education, actually, in the form of Chinese students coming here. I mean, so it's an invisible service export. That's what the LSE is, invisible exporter. Um, it is. And, uh, you know, that's two, about two billion pounds, probably. Not the LSE, but the whole Chinese students in the UK. But, you know, we're not well equipped to take advantage of the bits of the world that are growing rapidly. So, finally, if you look at, you know, the UK uh, GDP per head, well, there was quite a period um, when it looked as if you know, we were doing really quite nicely. And this is our, the blue line where GDP per capita. Now, of course, you know, one knows this is at dollars, and etc. And some of this is clearly exchange rate driven. But it doesn't look like a temporary exchange rate 
move. You know, I mean, the, the exchange, it's not as if the exchange rate is falling in some kind of undisciplined way. You know, it's been pretty stable for a couple of years before I showed you that. And so I don't think we can say that uh, the, the UK is in an unusual position that the exchange rate will bounce back. There's no particular reason why we should think it would. And so essentially, you know, the way I look at this is to say what was going on here was essentially a leverage play. You know, um, the UK economy was borrowing more than other people. Well, big fiscal, bigger fiscal deficits than other people and bigger household debt. You know, we had in 2007 higher household debt to GDP than the Americans. Now that's saying something. Uh, you know, significantly above the euro zone. The Americans about 155% of GDP. We're about 165% of GDP. Eurozone on average about 100% of GDP. And it's grown quite rapidly. So essentially what this is, is just, you know, well, just borrow money and spend it. And that looks great for a while. And then at the moment, um, you know, we've had an exchange of depreciation and we're having a deleveraging. And we've sort of gone back uh, down almost as far as the Italians. Which is uh, tough. Actually, in the 1970s, I can remember the Italians used to talk a lot about il sorpasso, which meant the overtaking, was when uh, the Italians were obsessed with overtaking the British economy in size. Uh, and that was a sort of national uh, objective. Uh, then it turned around quite sharply. Uh, in fact, the Italians still, as an overall size of the economy, not overtaking it because the Italians have given up having children. So their, you know, their population is, is much smaller now. But so we're still as an overall economy larger than Italy. But you know, in terms of GDP per head, you know, whereas only three years ago, we were about the same as the uh, US, you know, this is now quite a big, quite a big gap that's uh, opened up. So a slightly um, pessimistic prospect. Uh, just to end, it occurred to me that I was reflecting that when I graduated in uh, 2003, sorry, 73, um, <laughs> um, this was really at the end of another boom. I mean, we had uh, under Heath, Edward Heath came Prime Minister in 1970, and his Chancellor uh, Barber, Tony Barber, and what you'll see if you read the sort of economic history, you'll see references to the Barber boom. You know, and essentially, uh, we attempted to kind of kick the British economy to a higher level of growth, and there was... Uh, a lot of more public spending, and we ran into balance of payments trouble, um, and then we ran into severe public spending constraints, and then the IMF came in in 1976. And that was the kind of background in which I started my working life. And it's about the same now. Uh, we've had you know, a boom which seemed great at the time, and everyone was getting wealthier, and it's come to a sticky end in the form of a depreciation of the pound and some big uh, spending cuts. And so my early, you know, my 20s and early 30s were dominated by sterling crises, IMF coming in, public spending cuts, Thatcher coming in, cuts, strikes, etc. Um, and that's what's in store for you. Thank you. But we did come out of it, and probably we will too.